Welcome to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. This week I sat and talked with Elizabeth A. Davis. Elizabeth and I discussed her life coming up as an actress on Broadway, what it's like being nominated for a Tony, and how, in her words, nothing is wasted and nothing is lost. Here's my conversation with Elizabeth. So, you're on. I'm on. You're on. Here we go. So, you are? My name is Elizabeth, and it's debatable what my last name is. Oh, yeah. You're either Davis Richard, Davis... Or Richard, or, if you're not French Cajun, Richard. Richard. Right. So, I'm Elizabeth A. Davis, or Elizabeth Richard, or Elizabeth Richard. And you're an actress. Like, a legit actress. Like, you've been nominated for a Tony actress. I have, yeah. And Tony's, they, they, that's the thing for Broadway. I'm playing stupid, but yeah. That, I, I guess that's the thing that happened. That happened. That was a thing that happened in my life. Yeah. And that was for an awesome musical called Once. Yeah. That was for a show called Once the Musical. Yep. And that was the whole, the dude from the frames, Glenn Hansard. Okay. Okay. Glenn. Oh, shoot. There was a movie that I, that Jordan and I just watched. My husband's name, Jordan. Um, and it was Glenn, like 16 years old. What? And he was in this movie about a band that then toured Ireland. And after he finished that movie and toured Ireland, then he started The Frames. And then he did another movie about a band. And then he, um, then we had Once. So it's like, I watched that movie and I was like, wow, I owe pretty much my creative life to that guy in that movie. Glenn Hansard's a cool dude. He's a very cool dude. I saw him at Carnegie Hall recently. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, it was a remarkable moment because then Marquette Glova just unannounced walked out on stage and I was like, wow, there's there's part of my life up there. She's, quote, girl from once, right? Quote, yes. Yeah. I mean, quote, uh, I mean, unquote, yes. Because the character's quote, name girl. is girl. Right. Guy and girl. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we know that you're an actress, but I want to get a little bit more into how you got into acting. Mm-hmm. What? I mean, because you've been in New York for quite some time. Ten years. Ten years. And I think, you know, you had been in, obviously, other things before Broadway. You've done TV shows. You've done J.J. Abrams stuff. Yeah, you just earn your stripes with, like, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway. I got both my degrees in theater performance. I did my MFA and my BFA in classical theater performance. And then I just happened to find myself in a musical. But I, I had played the violin from the time I was three to 18, trained classically. Um, and I'm from Texas. So I was like fiddling. <laughs> I was just fiddling around Jeremy. Like, um, literally or figuratively? Like, well, of course both, but, <laughs> um, but definitely literally. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just did this photo shoot. I have this project called Reveal, which is a photo essay examining women who create. Mm-hmm. And we just featured my mom. And uh, she's the first theater artist I ever knew. Like, my mom was, was knocked up with me directing Ibsen's Pierre Gunt. Like, I'm like, way to go, mom. Like, this is in the middle of Texas, town of 300 people. Well, so your, your family was in theater. Yeah, like, in, I'm telling you, the population science is 363. And what city is this? Channing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Channing, close to Amarella, which, like, who's, um, I don't know if if anyone's ever heard of Amarella, but if you have, you've definitely never heard of Channing. But my parents were directing theater with, like, kids from the ranch. Like, my dad drove the bus and out. It was insane. But they created theater. We were doing, like, no theater. 
with ranch kids when I was in high school. It was it was pretty above above the bar what they were doing and they knew what they were doing. I didn't know what they were doing, but now I know that they were doing something incredible in that little bitty town. So this is and you'd said this is before you were even born, your parents were doing theater, right? Yeah, I mean they were just direct. It was educational theater, which okay. is a far cry from professional theater obviously, but But it's where a lot of it starts. It is. And I think it's yeah. where any child, any any person, young person or older person figures out that I have a propensity to this or I have a passion for this or this interests me and it's a seed that grows. And so yeah, sitting on the steps of this high school theater watching my parents direct plays from the time I was you know a zygote, literally, like a fetus. <laughs> okay. So you see this, and you're kind of surrounded by theater being younger. And, I mean, at least from what you were saying, it sounds like your parents were relatively supportive of that versus like, oh, you know, I'm some runaway, <laughs> and yeah. I, I, ch- I chose the big lights in city, and I'm going to be somebody. It, this was like, no, I, I studied this, and I trained this. How How did that go about? So, you know, you tell your parents you're interested in theater. Obviously, they're happy about it. Well, I... I didn't choose theater at first because I was like, well, this was nice. I love this. This is my whole life. But you can't possibly do that for a living. Like I I knew no professional actors. Like there was no one I had ever seen in my whole entire life that was an actor. Like for real. Yeah. So because of maybe the location, right? There's probably not a ton of acting work. No, no, there wasn't. But there was a guy named Trampus Thompson. (laughs) <laughs> what a great name, right? That is a good name. Trampus Thompson. Trampus, shout and his, out. His, <laughs> he, yeah, tote shout out. He lived down the dirt road from us in the converted Church of Christ Church. And they, they took the the baptismal and turned it to a bar. And like so they lived down the street in the Church of Christ Church, and they had horse pens. And so Trampus lived there. And my parents taught Trampus as well, but Trampus turned into a stunt guy, right? Wow. So... Like to this day, like Trampus is one of the foremost sought after stunt guys in Hollywood. (laughs) So I remember watching Trampus Thompson. There was a woman named Valerie Dillingham, who my parents also taught. And she's like a major, major force in L.A. right now as well in um, network television. And so those are my those are my people that I was like, oh, they got out. They did it. They did something. Um, They weren't actors, but there were these little glimmers around that I thought, Hmm, maybe, maybe I could go for it. Maybe right. I could do something. I don't know what that looks like, but so I went to college and I was like, mm. what, what school did you go to? I went to Baylor university, Baylor bears, Baylor, Baylor, Waco, Texas. Yep. We're climbing the ranks. No longer known for David Koresh. I don't even know who that is. So you, oh. you won. Wow. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was a psychopath. And anyway, for, forget, no, strike him from the record. Yep. Um, David Crush. So, Baylor. Um, and then I was like, well, I don't, how am I supposed to go to New York? I'm a woman. I don't have an equity card, which is like essential for working in equity houses, which every Broadway off Broadway house in New York is equity. Right. Can Before we get right into that, can you like yeah. seg- or just quickly explain what an equity card is? I mean, so it is it is literally a card. A piece it is of paper. A piece of laminated text. Okay, okay Jeremy. And it's it, 
it's kind of catch 22 because you have to work in an equity house to get your equity card, but you have to have your equity card to work in an equity house. So, so kind of like a, a union. That's se. right. It is a, it's like being in the director's guild or being in SAG after, which is screen actors guild or um, yeah. American Federation of television radio artists. Um, this is actors equity association. So I didn't have a card. I didn't, uh, I didn't know anyone in New York. And so I was like, whoa, uh, what are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do besides be eaten up and destroyed by the city? You look in the mirror and you say, I'm special. You say, <laughs> come on, Tony the Tiger, let's do this. Yeah, uh, We're great. And that, no, that was not going to work out for me. So mm. I also knew that I didn't know my craft really well. I mean, yeah, I had my undergraduate degree, but how well do you know your craft when you just got your undergraduate degree? Like there's no, you have theory, but you don't have practice. Right. So. I went to grad school. I uh, I sought out a uh, an MFA and in New York. No, I. Well, I also didn't know how to do that either because <laughs> okay. it was like, where am I supposed to go to grad school? I didn't even know that you could apply to Juilliard or Yale separately or like that whole path. I just did this thing called um, Erdas, which got a bunch of the MFA programs together across the country, and they had a conglomerate audition. Oh, that's cool. Um. And I flew up here by myself and was terrified and auditioned. And I got into one school. And it was a full ride. And it... Respect. Total respect. <laughs> um, full ride. And you got your equity card. And you got professional experience. And they gave you a showcase at the end of your degree in New York to get an agent. And so I was like, well, it's three years of my life. I would... This is we're going to go with this. We're going to do this. So we're going to move to Cleveland, Ohio, which, by the way, is becoming quite a fantastic city. Yeah. NBA champs, almost Thank MLB you. champs. Thank you. All of these things. Yeah. And the Cleveland Playhouse Regional Tony Award last year. Oh, there you go. There you go. So I moved to Cleveland and uh, it was rough and awesome. And I um, got a three year MFA degree and I learned my craft. And this is all with the end goal of. I'm going to get to New York. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get to New York. And you know what, Jeremy, it's this, it's, you know, you know, when you're, you just know you're supposed to do something. You mm -hmm. don't know where it is. You don't know how it's supposed to happen, but you know, you have like some framework of an idea. This calling per se. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Of like, I don't know if this is supposed to happen and. Perth, Australia, or if it's, you know, if I'm supposed to move to Bulgaria, but probably New York, right. but it could be any of these places. Um, and so there was just this, um, undergirding of commitment to the call, whatever that looked like. The call of being an actress and performing. Uh, yeah. Events. Of being an interpreter. I think of being mm. in a, being a storyteller. Okay. Um, so yeah, after I finished my MFA, I, I moved to New York and I moved into Times Square. Yeah, with an, big lights in the city. With an 18-foot U-Haul. This is not a joke. Oh, lordy. Um, totally sideswipe a lady on the West Side Highway. Shout out, lady. <laughs> Shout out to that dear soul, wherever she is. Oh. Um, but if you take out insurance, if you take out good insurance, you can sideswipe whoever you want to sideswipe. It's fine. Note to self. Yeah. So <laughs> next time you run an 18 foot U-Haul, dude. Um, so moved into 40 on 44th between 6th and 7th into the Lambs Theater, mm -hmm. uh, which the theater was on the third floor. And 
there was like a church on some floor and then there was like it was like a whole I don't know what was happening there but there was a lot of theater that was happening there Mm -hmm. and then cut to like four months later and they're like we're renovating the building you have to leave and there's like mice jumping out of my trash cans and it was you know I was wearing earplugs so I wouldn't be woken by the mice running across the floor it was great (laughs) 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 Um, but the final straw was one morning um Good Morning America's summer series, right? Is GMA is right around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I was like desperately exhausted because I was doing a show for free at night at the Salvation Army Theater. I was doing Masked Greek Tragedy, which was horrible. Amazing. <laughs> but whatever. Um, and I was like working two jobs. I was exhausted. <clears throat> and I was awoken by some like extremely loud voice. And I'm desperately exhausted. And it's Beyonce. And she's out singing the summer series. And I walk out my pajamas onto 44th. And I'm like, of course, Beyonce. Like, I have to leave. I have, like, I can't be awoke by Beyonce. This is insane. This is just insane living here. So the mice and Beyonce. And uh, so, yeah, I moved uptown. Right. And so when you saw Beyonce, it wasn't like, oh, I'm disgusted. This is like, holy cow. There's just so much going on. Yeah, it was that. It wasn't like, I hate you, Beyonce, because I love Bay, But. Yeah, who doesn't love Beyonce? Right, come on. She's also from Texas, so. Yeah. Um, No, it wasn't that. It was just my senses were completely, like, there was just too much stimuli. Yeah. I mean, I lived on the Lower East Side at one point, and it was just a noisy crapshoot. Yeah. 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 You just, yeah. So that was it. And I moved up, um, I don't know if 111 is uptown. Is that uptown? Somewhat uptown. Ish. 111-ish. Um, next to Central Park, because being from wide open spaces and sky, I, I finally was like, oh, this is doable. I can live in this city. Yeah. If I can walk out my door, instead of seeing Beyonce as much as I love her, I see grass and trees and a lake. Yeah. Or a mirror, excuse me. Right. The mirror. <laughs> the Harlem mirror. And is this Tony Hale's place? Dude. No, but I, I did, it's on the same street. So yeah, I lived, I lived in Tony Hale's old apartment and I started. Tony Hale from Veep and Arrested Arrested Development. Development. He's Buster. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I've never met the guy, but I, uh. You've gotten his mail. His microbiome must be like totally jiving with, with me still. I mean, I like to think that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That was Tony Hale. That apartment with, uh. So. Now, when did you start getting your first TV gig? Because obviously you moved to New York and you're, you know, it's, there's quite a few challenges ahead of you and you're, you're kind of, you know, I, I don't know, cutting your teeth per se of, uh, through, through work. I mean, what would you say would, was one of your first things of like, okay, like this, this is real. Maybe I can make a living doing this. Well, I did a lot of theater. I like, I did a show called Opus that I was really proud of. Mm-hmm. I did The Cherry Orchard. I did a new play about the cherry orchard kind of based on called the coffee trees. I did of mice and men. I did a lot of theater that I don't know if people would ever see, you know, I did, I was doing Shakespeare and et cetera. But you were getting the experience. Getting the experience. And I was also doing classical theater, which is what I trained for. Yeah. Um, I had, I had an agent and that I got out of my showcase. And then after the first year they called me like, dude, sorry. And they dropped me and I was like, great. Awesome. I remember standing in my apartment, like I remember the angle in Tony Hale's apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I was standing in Tony Hale's apartment looking, at, aka my apartment, and I remember how the light was coming in. 
and getting off the phone with this agent who had just dropped me cold, who, who now I'm cordial with and being like, this is it girl. Like, this is where the rubber meets the road. Like, are you just going to, are you just going to cry about it? <laughs> like get tough. Right. And yeah. So it's those moments that I think define, right. We're New Yorkers. Like you, you get kicked in the head. Yeah, you do. I mean, I think that's the difference between people, you know, like just a, a, a quick sidebar here is I think what separates people who are New Yorkers and people who move to New York, you know, like air quote for a bit is the ones that are New Yorkers are the ones who choose to stay here yeah. when things don't go their way. Like right. when, and whether that's losing a job or, you know, not getting that apartment or that significant other, I mean, you, right. you stay. And that's, I think that's what separates New Yorkers from everyone else per se. Right. It's as if it's a bit masochistic perhaps, but it, mm, no, it's not. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It's, it's awesome. Like, um, I was telling you earlier that I was in San Diego. So I did a show, um, small sidebar. Very recently. recently. So I was at the old globe, which is an incredible, um, institution where they do a lot of amazing classical theater, but I was doing a world premiere musical out there. That musical was? That musical was rain and it's by multi, multi Tony and drama desk nominee, um, Michael John Lacusa. Mm -hmm. He's very well known for just rich, gorgeous, complicated scores. And so we were in San Diego for a long time. Um, and I came back to New York for the first time. And, pe- you know, people in this cab line, ah! there's just screaming and yelling. And you're, you, what are you you're like, Gloria? yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. And yeah. um, immediate like assault. But there was something too that was like, oh, my, there's just an electricity that is that is irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. I can walk out my door and just be enlivened. It may be somebody doing crack or <laughs> it could be somebody like having a deep exchange about life. Yes. The, those, you know. The polarizing extremes. Exactly. And that's where the electricity is. So we choose the electricity despite yeah. the head kicks. So what... Ha- when okay. did once come along? Yeah, or... yeah. Okay, so uh, so I'm I'm doing running around doing theater that I love and deeply care about that my family would most of my extended family will never see or care about, um, and I think I I think I'd been in the city what four four or five years doing like the Crest commercial or the Fringe episode and going out of town and doing that classical show that I care about that maybe nobody else cares about. But all those things are immensely successful in terms of work and constant yes. work it's not like oh i did one thing and then i retreated back to my apartment in hopes of another big thing no, it's like you are getting steady work i think that i think that working actors are blue collar people like we are it, it's like the grind it's like you show up we just had a raise uh, an off-broadway contract raise which we fought for mm-hmm. um the fair wage on stage campaign by nick westrate if he's listening Shut up. Good job, man. Um, but it is. It's it's you don't get paid a lot to do these crazy shows. Sometimes mm-hmm. if you're doing off off Broadway, those cats doing off broad off off Broadway are getting a hundred dollar stipend, Jeremy. Maybe sometimes like, hey, here's a metro card. You're welcome. Oh heavens. So <laughs> I'm serious. Ah! Um so it you do it because you love it. You do because you love yeah. it. And everyone has like some side gig that they're just trying to. I sold, I sold country Western wear, Jeremy. I remember that. 
Oh, yeah. I think I do. I yeah. Oh, yeah. Got fired from that job, though, because I decided to do a play. And then they were like, oh, well, you're fired. I was hey, like, Poe Buddy's nerfed. <laughs> For real. But the, you know what? That experience made it into a musical I wrote. So nothing is wasted. Nothing is lost. Yeah, suck it, store. That's right. J.W. <laughs> Cooper went out of business anyway. <laughs> Uh, so let's see. Once came, I think five years, five years into being here in the city. Um, and I just, I went in, I went in on an audition. Like I'd gone in a hundred times on auditions and it was the first time that I was reintroducing the violin though. Nobody that had seen my work previously here in the city knew that I was, knew that I played. It was basically just something you had on your resume, like violin skills. Yeah. I have some violin skills guys. Um, it's also nothing. I didn't pursue that during grad school either. People knew I did it. I also competed in the Miss Ohio pageant. Ah, so, shout you know, out Miss Ohio. I mean, <laughs> Miss Toledo. It was no, it wasn't even Toledo. It was Miss Mommy Valley. But the uh, but but the point being is that the violin made a resurface then. Right. But it just hadn't. It had been like in the corner, being like, "What's up?" And I had just been like, "Shut up." <laughs> and then I went in for once, and um... which once is a is a musical in which all. I would say the majority of the cast are playing instruments. They are. Right. So if you're listening to this and aren't familiar with it and just know it as a movie, the musical, well, you know what, forgive Let me no, have please you explain. Go. Uh, um, I, th- this musical, in my opinion, for the most part, was the term is diegetic, meaning that the songs came out of story. The songs came out of a narrative. So it wasn't just like, and now we're singing a song about people with, hoover sucker vacuums you know we're not doing like the hoover sucker vacuum dance line right we're doing oh these people are in a music store playing a song diegetic meaning it comes out of the story right so it felt different to people i think i I think it felt there was a nerve that it hit um that was just really raw and authentic and i think that being an actor first Everyone on the show was an actor first. There, I think there were maybe three people in the cast out of 12, maybe four, that w- were known for doing musicals. Everyone else was just, was like, oh, you're an actor. Oh, you also played the guitar. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So John Tiffany, the at this point, like, he's multi-award winning everything. He was very interested in making sure that everyone was an actor first. And uh, I think that's what made the show really special um yeah it was an incredible experience so it was the first time that i was like ah this synthesis of all these things in my life suddenly coming together in a way that has really defined my aesthetic as i've moved forward after that um one other show that i've done since then was with um another tony winning director named john doyle and John Doyle won Tony's for Sweeney Todd, where Patti Lapone famously played the tuba. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did a show called Company, uh, where Raul Esparza, I think he was on the piano, but also all of the actors were the orchestra. So he kind of started that trend in London, mainly because of economic reasons. Yeah, because obviously if, if you're doing a, a show or a musical, you have all those people down below. Yeah. Whom- you know, I think a lot of those are union people too, and that's they quite are. a bit of money. Well, we became that. This is a whole other ball of wax here, <laughs> which is the union issue, which is the, that local eight hundred two musicians union mm-hmm. and the actors' equity union. Then you have then because of once because of shows like John Doyle, because of companies Sweeney Todd, and I did a show with him called Allegro. 
you suddenly had this whole crop of people who were saving producers a lot of money by being both. Yeah. But our unions, another shout out, a kind of aggressive shout out, if you will allow me. <laughs> <laughs> Please. I, I will shout out. Um, between the 802 union and the equity union, um, I'm, you know, we're members of both. But as far as having a contract, a fair contract in place that allows us to be protected to get the minimum of, of both contracts, it doesn't exist. So oh. it's like being re there's just, in my opinion, there's no reason after 10, however many years this has been done in New York consistently, that there shouldn't be something in place to protect actors more aggressively. So I just mm. did a reading of my, of my show that I've written um, where there are actor musicians and, you know, New York Stage and Film, and they're a fantastic organization. And, and they were really, really understanding of what that balance is because i think it's a math problem i think a lot of people look at it like well you're half musician and you're half actor therefore that's a hundred percent so here's one here's your pay and it's like actually i'm 100 percent actor and then i'm also 100 percent musician for you because i'm also your orchestra so that that's one plus one jeremy that's two two it's not 50. count it thank you <laughs> Thank yeah, you. that's very similar to, to the stuff that happened in terms of publishing, like way back in the day, because I, I don't know how familiar you are, and I don't want to take too much away from this conversation in terms of how music publishing and royalties work. I want to know all about it. So the way that it is, and this is because I had a previous career in the music industry, is publishing uh, is has to equal up to 200%. So you oh. have words, right? And that right. there can be many contributors to the words of a song, and that has to equal 100%. And then you also have music, and you could have many contributors to the music of a song. Um, who sometimes they do music and words, other times they're just doing music, and that has to equal up to 100%. So when uh, a lot of times there's publishing agreements and fees for, say, uh, this band is in X commercial or something like that, um, when you're doing the math for it, it has to equal up to 200%. Uh, be, again, because of all the different contributions that can be made on it, and also because the words, right, can be used um, separately. Of course. Right? So you could use uh, a, a words from a example, I think, like words from a tweet or words from uh, another song in in your song, but not even use the music. And so that right. all those people are entitled who are just on the words are entitled to cuts of it. And so it's really interesting. And I think things like uh, the whole digital music era is where this, especially with like hip hop and things like that is when it started to get a little bit more convoluted uh, because of how, um, you know, how messy this is. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, hopefully I didn't trail off too much. No, but, not yeah. at all, because I, because kind of moving over to the other side myself, I'm, I'm that that's like akin to being a composer lyricist. Like exactly. if you're, if you're writing for musical theater, you have, you do, you split it into three parts. Like right now I like the book credit, the music credit, the lyric credit. Mm -hmm. So that may be a good example for people in the theater to say, okay, we, we divide between composer lyricist, even though it's a song and you receive it as one part. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it took it took a while for this to happen in terms of the music industry. You know, uh, I think probably the most famous stuff is kind of like the Beatles. Right. So hmm. most of the Beatles was it was shared like, uh, you know, Lennon and McCartney. Um, and then, you know, you had bands that would try to keep the peace. Uh, like a good example of a band that tries to keep the peace is Coldplay. 
uh, even though I'm not a huge fan of them anymore. But um, all of Coldplay's publishing is distributed equally, even though the majority of the lyrics are written by Chris Martin. Um, so he just says, I don't want to mess with it. Yeah. Well, it's equal, equal share. Exactly. It kind of keeps people from fighting a, right. a lot of internal conflict. And if you're not worried about that, um, you know, versus there's other bands that I had worked with uh, in my previous career and they would, it would be all over the map. Um, I mean, the names are, the band names are irrelevant, but it would just be very interesting on how, oh, well, this person contributed this much percent to this song and this to that because of, you know, again, it, it all comes down to money. At the end of the day, and acting and arts and all of these things, right. it, it's sad that, yeah, it just comes down to money. And I think, you know, and I, I want to get back to what you were saying. I think a lot of people, when they listen to this, if you are on Broadway, especially now, people think like Hamilton, right? And Hamilton's right. worth a gajillion billion dollars. And so surely all of those people on stage are, are multimillionaires, right? right no. <laughs> no. No, they're not. But because be, because of Leslie Odom Jr., they at least have profit sharing. Leslie Odom Jr., who played Aaron Burr. Who played Aaron Burr, correct. Um, Who's also a musician and singer. Yeah. Yep. He, he's a fantastic guy. And I think that he knew that he had the positioning better than any person at that time, at this time. It was it was just the zeitgeist. It had to happen, and he was the guy to do it. And he fought, and I think that I think that he put his reputation on the line potentially with other producers to kind of make a stir, to really stir the pot and mm -hmm. say, hey, producers, actors are creating. We're creating for you. Yeah, we're we're informing the way that you are writing, and to me that 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 is a symbiotic relationship. That is a synthesis of what's happening, is that we're contributing to the way that you're creating, and also being on the other side too a bit as a writer. Now, I I one hundred percent see that. Like what's what, when someone brings something into the room, suddenly I'm like, oh, that informs this part of the story in such a way that uh, oh. So I think that um, it was essential that he fight that fight. And now I think other producers are following suit. I think the new Frozen Lab, um, there's also a conversation like, what is Lab? What is Workshop? And what do you... Right. Frozen being Josh Gad and... Yes. Yeah, so yeah. the new stage musical that's coming, I, I believe that they're also getting profit sharing, which is a big deal because that will be, I'm sure, an extremely successful, yeah. a profitable musical. So it's just acknowledging that actors are a part of the creative process. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's also for me, it's, it's exciting, but also kind of sad in some ways to see how long it takes certain industries to catch up. Right. Because with mm -hmm. films, the first person to do profit sharing was Cary Grant. And you know, let's think how long ago was that? <laughs> right. So, I mean, you know, Cary, cause basically back then, if you were an actor, you worked for the studio. Right. And you know, and I, I, I won't talk too long about this, but Cary Grant was the first to go, to the studio and basically like, I'm going to be independent and mm. I'm going to get to choose what I want to work on and what I don't because I'm so big yeah. and I will take share of profit um, or revenue shares and so on. And so now that's like just this, that's the norm of really, really big actors. Right. Uh, which is why you'll see, you know, Brad Pitt do some independent movie that only cost you know, what, like half a million dollars or some, or I don't know, a million or something like that to sure. make. And they're like, well, why would someone this big do it? Because of profit sharing. Of course. Yeah. Well, I think we're also going, this is cyclical a bit too in the theater, because I think there was a time when, when this was par for the course as well. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, maybe I'm totally wrong about that. Maybe I'm totally making that up, but I, I feel as if, you know, like, um, theater owners 
like the Schuberts, people people that own the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, a fantastic actor, uh, Santino Fontana, um, was talking to me about this, that there used to be a time where theater owners would go in with the theater producer in order to produce a show so that the theater owners had a vested interest. This is a bit different than what we're talking about, but they had a vested interest in the in the health of the production. And therefore, theater producers were not so belabored with this financial responsibility. So mm-hmm. we didn't have to bring in major stars in order to recoup the investment. And now theater theater owners don't, they don't have to put up money. They're like, why would I put up my own money when you just have to do it yourself and I am not out anything? Um, and I think that's really driven the star vehicles on Broadway. Right. Because I th- in the last 10 years, I, I've just noticed in the past five years, a dramatic shift toward looking like Hollywood. Yeah. You know, that's, it, that's interesting. Yeah, we we've and that's why shows like Hamilton are they and once in essence, like it created stars. It created Kristen Milioti, you know. Yeah, she went to How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother. And then she did her own show called A to Z. And then I think she's on Fargo now. Mm. So, you know, I, I, I just respect the model of creating stars rather than bringing them in. Um, well, but, of course. It, I mean, it's it's I think it, it sounds very fair, too, because these. These people become stars from their work. Right. Um, from the quality of the work as exactly. opposed to. Yeah. And I get it. Look, I get it. I, I'm working with a commercial producer right now that I really respect. And I understand, like, it's a lot of money they're having to put out. I, it's a lot of money. And, and recouping your money on Broadway is like, what, three and 10, I think. So yeah, it's a very difficult business. It's a difficult business. Like, it, you have to do it because you love it. Right. Otherwise, like, another straight walleye kick to the head. Well, so on on that note, um, because this is, I mean, this is a fascinating conversation, and I, and I didn't even tend to get into the business of it, but this has been really good, because you are also a writer, and you said that earlier, um, and you'd written, I believe, a play mm-hmm. called Indian Joe, mm-hmm. which is with one of my favorite actors ever, uh, a gentleman named Gary Farmer. Are you kidding? No, I'm not kidding, because Smoke Signals, to me... Uh, is one of my favorite movies ever. And every time I watch it, I like kind of cry my eyes out. Uh, side note, shout out to Smoke Signals. It's an incredible movie uh, wow. about American Indians. Yeah. I had no, oh, be- obviously. Yeah. My grandma coyote. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, wow. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. I mean, and given the fact that you've, you know, you're kind of getting, you've gotten your feet wet in every aspect of the industry from, understanding you know it's not like you had everything handed to you on a silver platter i mean Mm-mm. you worked your way up and you went from being you know in small things small like cool big shows like jj abrams shows but then also you know being uh, a major name in a play and now writing like how how is all this how did all this influence you and how did this come about well back to that like nothing is wasted nothing is lost um i, I think it's two-pronged first of all the term storyteller mm-hmm. saying. I, I went from the title of actor to the title of artist to the title of this is also this is also just me calling myself this, but then sure. suddenly from artist to storyteller because storyteller doesn't necessarily require a venue; it just requires a story. And right, how can that come? That can come out as me being the actor or as me being the writer. Um, so it, it it came because I had a story to tell and I had to tell it. And I didn't know any other way because it was my personal experience, but for me 
to tell the story. So that's how I became a writer. I mean, I've written my whole life, but as far as writing for the mass per se, it just it came out of necessity. But also, it was quite strategic, and that as a woman in the industry, you see it. You see, it's like at a certain age, the roles just evaporate for women, mm. and I knew that I had to diversify in order to stay in the industry that I love, and so I. I quickly decided I'm going to write the rules for myself that don't exist. And I'm going to force people to listen to me, even though they might not cast me at a certain point in my life. Right. So, um, so yeah, so that's how that started. Um, it was down at the Cherry Lane Mentor Project. Uh, Angelina Fiordalisi is the artistic director of that gorgeous off-Broadway theater. Um, there have been an extraordinary amount of women that have shepherded this piece as it's grown and changed. Um, and, but, but I never imagined, Jeremy, that there would be a guy capable of playing who this real person was in my life. I was like, this guy doesn't exist. And then when I saw Gary Farmer's audition tape, I watched it over and over and over because it was as if I was it was as if I was watching my friend again. And he is Gary Farmer is an American Indian. He's Six Nations. Yeah. Um that was extremely important to me. I was like if we're going to do this, if we're going to cast a guy to play his self-titled Indian Joe, we ain't going to cast somebody that, that does not have heritage, you know? <laughs> like sure. they 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 will crucify me and I w- I just don't want to do it. Right. I don't want to do it. So Gary brings an extraordinary amount of power and history and just authentic experience to the role and this this role of, of indian joe like can you give just like a very brief synopsis of yeah. the of the the play sure uh native american homeless man looking for a fight texas pageant queen looking for her cause and the african-american man who sees them both for who they are there you go in a little nutshell but in essence uh, i met i met uh, joe joe lightfoot gonzalez when i was 18 years old at baylor in waco yeah, I remember hearing many stories about this man. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he, I had to write about him because at a certain point when he got sick, I, I mean, I was mental with trying to figure out what this guy meant in my life. Like, mm. it was very codependent. Now that I go to counseling, I know what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was just, just like extreme. Like, I didn't know how to be okay unless he was okay. And he was an alcoholic homeless man. Mm-hmm. Um. And so in essence, it's a journey about a a woman recognizing how she has a severe case of white savior syndrome Mm. and the journey to saying, do you try? Do you even try if you know you're going to make a mess of it? Or do you still try knowing that trying is the only way to make a difference? So this is a story that I think is really relevant to right now. Like we just did a performance of it, a, a backers audition. Not a, a, that's not true. We did a performance with New York Stage and Film and we had a lot of money people that we invited to be a part of the next incarnation. Right. And it was amazing how people responded because you do, you have a Native American and African American and two white women on stage. And you're, we're dealing with land and identity and very, very relevant right now. Yeah. And just assumptions and, there's a lyric I wrote in a song called Don't Mess With Texas, which happens to be the anti-litter campaign of Texas. 
But everyone thinks it's just Texans with their guns, like shooting. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Well, I like, don't no mess idea. with Texas. You know. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that because yeah. I thought it was yeah, just some no. sort of weird chant. It's anti litter. Okay, don't throw your trash so, on the streets. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. But there is there's a lyric that I run there. Um, this land is your land. This land is my land. From Alamo Town to Gulf Shore White Sands, and in essence, it's like. The the front cover of the New York Times magazine this month is this land is your land, this land is my land. So I, I hope we get to tell it in a large commercial way soon. Mm-hmm. And I think that's hap- that's that will happen because um, I do think it's relevant. I, I think that it forces you to go into all of your mess and listen to someone else's mess and still find a way to be compassionate mm. and empathic. I think... You know, uh, I have some other friends, and including myself. Uh, people are so empowered and also love to hear uh, just stories in general, but specifically mm-hmm. stories where there's hope, right? Totally. A- and I like a good example is uh, so I used to be a huge Death Cab for Cutie fan way oh, back in the oh, day. I, okay. Photo listen. album. Shout out Chris Walla. Like, loved Death Cab. And, Summer skin. Yeah. And I remember uh, di- uh, Ben Gibbard, who is the lead singer of Death Cab. Yes. He got a lot of criticism in like one of his other records because he was happy, right? Because basically the, the art that he was creating, people felt it, it was fake because there was no, like, because he was previously identified as someone who was singing songs of hope, per se. Uh, hmm. Hope being, you know, like Bob Dylan stuff, but like hope you know, he had, he had been through a rough relationship, like, you know, and it just goes to show how much more powerful, uh, is music, is arts, uh, in all of these, these forms when there's messages of hope versus everything's fine. Um, you know, yeah, there's a couple, you know, Pharrell songs where it's like happy and stuff like that and people <laughs> like that, but the mo the strongest, most, you know, resonating music in history period are songs about like, and and art forms that have the message of hope and love. And Absolutely. I don't know why, uh, but it, it's just like that feeling that you get when you hear that. And so that it excites me so much to hear uh, more about Indian Joe and, and also the drive that this has kind of instilled in you in, in terms of being a true working uh, actress. It's, yeah. it's really exciting. Thanks, man. I think that, I, I think, yeah, we all want I mean, I think this is one of the last words that is unpolluted. I think the word grace is very unpolluted. Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that, you know, at the end, we do. We want hope. We want happiness. But we want someone to not see us for the worst thing we've done. We want someone to see us. We want, we want someone to be gracious. And even, yeah. So I think hope, hopefully this story and the stories you're talking about that resonate most deeply have a strain of you can wallow through all of the pain you want to, but at the end, give me a little grace. Right. Know? Wow. That's, this is, this has been a very rich conversation. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I like it. I do too. I have no expectation like that going into it. So I want to get back to you because that was very sweet what you said but what's, I, I'm what's not trying next to be saccharine. no what's, um, what's next for you in terms of like what are you working on now before we wrap this up because we just have a few minutes left sure i'm working on a play called childless 
And is this something you wrote? It is something I wrote. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think that I want to ask this question of myself and other people. I want to ask the question, do children shape us or do they identify us? Oh, it's deep. And I think that's the question I'm asking in this play. Um, it's, it's a four person play with the concept album. So I don't, I, I'm like, I'm like, I'm not writing another musical ever in my life. That was the hardest thing is the hardest thing I've ever done. Like give me a hot but you did it. break. I did it. We're still doing it. I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so it's a play and I have four songs written for the concept album so far. So if anyone wants to give me 10 grand to do the album, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. I shouldn't, I shouldn't do that. No, you're fine. But, um, plug. But yeah, so it, it's like two parts of myself. I think I'm, I have two characters that are in essence me that are asking. One has four children and has just left her husband of 10 years. And one has just um, left her high power jar and had a hysterectomy. And so it's this question of, um, yeah, we'll see what it's going to be. I have 30 pages so far and I'm pretty terrified. But like I've learned that the terror is the good place to be. It's good to be in the terror. It's good to be in the... Well, it produces drive in a lot of ways, right? Yeah. yeah. It's the, I don't like, um, I'm a finalist at the actor studio, membership for the actor studio. Nice. And Ellen Burstein was the moderator for this last Friday session. Mm-hmm. And she was like, when you're in the, I know what I'm doing place, that's, there's nothing there. She's like, when you move into the, I don't know place, that's creative. And that, that's what sucks, Jeremy. Like that's the, <laughs> like it sucks so much. Because I just have to be okay with the fact that for the rest of my life, as as a person committed to being an actor and a storyteller, I will have to be in, in the I don't know places in order to do the most authentic work. And that's scary, but also like... In a way, but wouldn't you say that's that's also very... It's almost a relief, right? It's a relief because it knows... I know that I'm going to be alive. I'm not going to... I'm not going to... I'm not gonna, die in a year and then just exist right i'm going to have to live i'm going to push myself to the precipice every time and haul and shore myself up to do this thing now i will spend thousands of dollars in counseling because there's an emotional toll that (laughs) death takes (laughs) um that's okay that's okay like we're all look look blanche dubois is like one of my dream roles and i'm like that woman needed counseling more than any living soul ever. And she's the most deeply interesting person, in my opinion, that could have ever been created, Tennessee Williams. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, because we don't go to the theater to watch people that don't need counseling. We go to watch people that are a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but I mean, the, I, I would say that, yeah, we go to watch people who have powerful stories. And I think yeah. you don't, go to see everything's green everything's yeah. fine you go to be inspired and, and and you know see a powerful story of usually hope and and redemption and yeah. you know occasionally tragedy but again it's a powerful story yeah like even if if you talk about the the shape of a narrative like you have your um inciting incident you mm-hmm. have your rising action you have you have a crisis and a climax Right. You have if, if if a show does not have a crisis, you don't have a show. So I just have to tell myself that Elizabeth, if you are not having a crisis, you don't have. What's what show are you going to tell? Yeah. So, shout out to crisis. <laughs> shout out to crisis. <laughs> That's a great way to end it. Yes. So, Hashtag. 
Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so happy to be here. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, we'll get you on again soon. Sounds good. All right. Bye. You've been listening to Blamo, a podcast with an exclamation point. I want to give a thanks again to Elizabeth for coming on. If you like what you heard today, subscribe and listen to new and archive episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find me elsewhere on the web on Instagram and Facebook at Blamo Podcasts, or send me an email at blamopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks a lot. We'll see you next week.